Welcome to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the talk. Uh, My name is Eve, in case you don't know me, I'm the clergy lead here at St George's and we are continuing our Made for More series this week. We'll be thinking about who we are, how we're made, how we're created in love by a loving creator for primarily for God, for relationship with God, uh, for work, for rest and now we're thinking about being made for relationships, for love. Um, And so I hope that you've been journeying along with us. You can always catch up on the talks, on our podcast, uh, on our YouTube. So it's really helpful to do that. Um, So what does it mean to be made for relationship, to be made for love? I saw this on social media recently. Just have a little read. We thought it was our ability to love that made us human. But it turns out it was actually our ability to select each image containing a boat. Anyone had to do that online as you prove? Um, John Mullaney, who is a comic that I like, makes the point, we spend much of our days telling a robot that we are not a robot. <laughs> um, and, uh, and she tells you about you know, the world we live in, doesn't it? Interesting. Um, some of us will remember the series we had last year on 1 John, what's love got to do with it, what is, what is love, what is um, love in God's eyes. And today we're thinking about the narratives that proclaim our identity and our purpose in God. We've been singing earlier in that song, Waymaker, this, that is who you are. We sing of who God is and what God is like, and it's in learning what God is like that we learn who we are. And that might be especially resonant when we look to our news screens, when we look to people claiming others, claiming lives, and also as we recover back into community in all its forms uh, from the isolation of COVID. And we've got the next uh, three weeks to think about this. I'm going to do some foundation stuff today. And in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be a little bit of input And there's also going to be some conversations with others looking at different relationships that we are in together and looking at our experience uh, as informed by scripture. So I invite you to to lean into this, to step into this and to reflect for yourself uh, what it says to you about how you're living your life as well. So let's have a moment and pray. I'm aware that last week, if you were here, we spent some time in silence before the Lord. So I'm just going to leave a little bit of silence and invite the Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts as we think about this. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come afresh? Would you come again? And would you settle our hearts as we prepare to look to your word? you speak, Lord, your servants are listening. So our reading this evening was taken from Genesis chapter 2. If you've got a Bible or a device with the Bible on it, you might want to open that. Um, If you don't bring a physical Bible to church, you are allowed to, just in case you didn't know. Um, You know, you can. Some people are like, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do this? Uh, So if you have a Bible that you either write in or you use for your kind of day-to-day, then do bring it along, or you can get 
it up on your device. And today, although our reading was taken from Genesis 2, we're looking at the whole sweep, really, of the narrative of Genesis 2 and 3 as part of a whole uh, drama of what it means to be human, what it means to be in relationship with God. And as we head into this, I just want to um, remind us that um, as we come to Genesis, we're looking to consider the Bible to be authoritative in our lives, to carry the breath of God, the authority of God. And we hold ourselves accountable to it as God's uh, chosen kind of instrument of communication, um, that the word written proclaims the word in flesh, Jesus. And so we want to look to Genesis in its context as well as we read this together. And so it's helpful to note that Genesis 1 and 2, they're not in competition with each other. Uh, The authors are using parallel narratives to show the macro, the zoomed out, and the micro, the zoomed in, whys of the universe. Why uh, are things like they are? Genesis 1 establishes order at a cosmic level, and Genesis 2 at the terrestrial level. Um, So it's much more about the who are we, the why are we, than it is the what and the how. And uh, it helps us to think about ourselves in relationship to creation, to God, to others. And it communicates to us our purpose. And the Jewish creation stories, the narratives that we find in Genesis, were offered as a counter-narrative to the competing creation stories of the day. We were not created from chaos or from petty deities fighting. We were not created to be pawns, to be moved around and discarded by gods who were not loving. We see in Genesis that Yahweh is a loving creator who already exists in community, in Trinity, and creates out of love. The stories of Genesis are true origin stories, true stories in the sense that they tell us the truth of who we are, in the why of who we are. There's loads of imagination and imagery that it invites us into that does far more than a purely literal and simplistic reading does. We can step into the story tonight. And I brought today, I thought sometimes it's helpful, I was talking to some of our preachers earlier um, about how, you know, preparing for sermons and uh, we were sharing stories of how sometimes you kind of nick other people's stuff. And it's always good to reference that rather than, you know, give a load of stuff and then someone go, I heard that from someone else. It's all borrowed, right? But it's just good to, to share with you. Uh, and so I've been reading some commentaries this week. This guy, um, there's a guy called Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann. Uh, there's a commentary that I've been reading that really helped me to see this idea of story and true stories of who and why we are, the story that we choose to trust in. Uh, And Brueggemann says, these stories, these creation narratives do not exist by themselves or for themselves. They exist as they are told and valued, transmitted and remembered by a community which is seriously engaged in a life of ministry and faith. There are a different kind of story about who we are, who we're meant to be, and who God is. And Genesis 1 was likely written and presented to um, the exiles in Babylon, where all around them, uh, they were occupied, they were told that to worship foreign gods. And in the midst of that, um, God's people were asking, is it possible that God is still ruling and reigning, that God is still with us? 
And the creation narrative says, yes, your God is a God of love. The God of the whole world is with you. Whether sickness or poverty or unemployment or loneliness, in every human experience of abandonment, these creation narratives speak to us. So let's head into Genesis uh, 1 and 2. And one of the things we learn from our creation story uh, in Genesis 1 is that all human beings are made in the image of God. Uh, These are some wonderful images from the Brick Bible uh, online, if you want to go through. I really enjoy these. Um, They're actually really, really faithful to the text. So go and have a look. Um, All human beings are made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, we learn, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. In the ancient Near East, uh, where all these creation narratives uh, were circulating, they were usually undergirded by the claim of one special individual, the king maybe, um, who was made in the image of God, who reflected uh, a deity, and the normal people belonging to a different class. And in contrast, in Genesis, we see that all human beings, men and women, are made in the image of God. And that challenge ran very deep in that context. The challenge of the Bible was not to bring the kings down, but to bring everybody up, to elevate dignity and beauty, and that men and women were reflecting the image of God in the world. And so another um, scholar, Isabel Hamley, who has written a a book about justice that is rooted in Genesis, and uh, she used to be the chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's a very cool job. Um, And she used to also be a probation officer, so she knows a lot about this lived out. She says, treating every other human being as made in the image of God and fundamentally worthy of respect, dignity, and equality is the very minimum the starting point in human relationships. And now you might be thinking, that's obvious. Every human being is valuable and has dignity. We take this for granted sometimes in the West because we are so saturated in our Christian heritage. The Jewish Christian story, the the revolution of Christianity that turned the world upside down and was radically different to the Greek and Roman culture that Jesus exploded into, a culture in which status and wealth and health and the the sex of being male was valued and other people were discardable. Men and women were not all seen as image bearers. Younger children were not valued as citizens. So we have this golden rule now, treat others as you wish to be treated. Do you know who said that? Jesus did. Um, Has anyone seen Hamilton? Yeah. Uh, You know that bit where the the women, who are amazing, sing, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Do you know that bit? I didn't sing it in my proper, you know, I'm not in like the dress and everything. But um, uh, they're speaking about the the US Constitution. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I would argue it's not self-evident. It's Jesus evident. Jesus is the one who brought that to us. And actually, it goes on, uh, that statement to say that they are endowed by their creator 
with certain rights. There is an acknowledgement of a creator that we have um, all but lost in our surrounding culture. We think it's obvious how people should treat one another, but as we'll see, it's not. We need God to be our reference point. So human beings are made in the image of God, and then we come to our passage where we zoom in on humanity. And God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Creation is deemed good by Yahweh, whole, complete, as it should be. But then we see something that is not good. That is strong language in this passage. And what we see is that human beings are not meant to be isolated or on their own, even in relationship to their creator. And God seeks to provide a helper, a companion suitable, recognizable to the man. Not an animal, not a plant. I know that now there's lots of like merch with like plant guy, plant lady, you know, if you have lots of plants or pets, you know, that kind of thing. And that is good. Those are things of creation that we are meant to enjoy. But we are meant to be in relationship. And man didn't have to strive for this. God took action. God took the initiative. Just as God's word brings creation into being, the man speaks in recognition of the woman, the suitable um, companion for him. And this got me wondering, you know, and it might sound a bit heretical to ask, is God enough? Or to say, God is not enough. And what I don't mean by that is that we can earn our salvation, that we are self-sufficient. But what I do mean is that from these narratives, we see that God has designed us to be in human relationships and in relationship to God, and that brings life in all its fullness. That brings community. That brings um, the community that God is seeking to be in relationship with. Elsewhere in Scripture, God is described as the helper of humanity in Psalm 121 and Isaiah 41. But there is a sense um, that there is a loneliness that God actually wants to be fulfilled by relationships with other human beings. And male and female here was a way to embrace the whole of humanity, a literary formula to stress both the completeness of what it says and the unity of humanity across difference. Human beings thrive in these relationships of difference and dignity. Again, Isabel Hamley says, a single human with no difference, with no other to react to, interact with, is lonely. A loneliness not even divine presence can remedy. That doesn't mean that spending time on our own isn't vital and valuable, as we talked about last week. It means we're not supposed to be islands. We're not supposed to not need anyone. We're supposed to be in relationship to one another. God isn't asking us to be alone or lonely. God desires a multicultural, multi-generational family on the earth, a body of which Christ is the head. His grace is sufficient. What we do have in God is perfect, faithful love. 
We have identity, we have purpose. So although we also find that in other people, to an extent, because relationships form us for good, sometimes they harm us, they are not our sole provider of those things. They are in reference to and made sense of by our creator, God, so that our relationships can complement that, reveal it, but it flows from the life of God. It means there is enough faithful love for every person, removes competition, and it fuels compassion. We live in a particularly individualistic culture uh, now in the West, in our nation. The self is king, and one's own rights must be protected at all costs. We think of ourselves as a central character, which we'll learn was um, the consequence of disobedience and rejection of God's intention for us. And when we put God back in the center, we have a reference point for all other relationships. You'll note this evening and in the next couple of weeks that we're not primarily starting with romantic relationships in these times together. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that we sometimes in our culture now take huge identity from whether we are married or single or dating And there are so many other ways that we are called and invited to engage with people um, that are not dependent on a romantic relationship status, as we would put on Facebook. If you still use Facebook, I mean, I still use Facebook. Um, And also that those relationships and marriage have particular vocations and callings to point to something, to point to who God is, who Christ is, and the church. But the the purpose and the principles of what we're thinking about together in relationships apply to all sorts of relationships that we'll hear about in the next few weeks. We're made for intimacy that is not just in romantic relationships and sexual intimacy, but emotional intimacy with different people. So I want to encourage us to not jump to, you have God and that's enough. Because it is, and it isn't. It's It's a wisdom discernment thing to look at when we're isolating ourselves from others and using God as an excuse. It takes discernment to do that. And then we see in Genesis 3, the continuation of this narrative, human relationships are fractured by sin. A serpent appears in the narrative and twists the truth and said, did God say, is God who he says he is? You could be like God. It's the story of all of us. There's the opportunity to learn right from wrong outside of relationship with God, to define it ourselves. And then, therefore, it becomes a category that's abstract, external, something to be thought about rather than lived out. God is treated as an object rather than creator. The beautiful boundaries given for life in all its fullness are seen as a threat. The vocation that Josh talked about a couple of weeks ago is neglected. There's no more mention of tending and feeding. They have no energy for that. Their interest is focused on their self, on their new freedom and the terror that comes with it, as one commentator says. Adam even names the woman, which is what he was just doing to the animals. He loses the recognition of his companion. And humans suffer the consequences of their choices. 
We have to leave the context for community and relationship. And we see that the other focus turns to self-focus, the interdependence to independence, and community to isolation and self-sufficiency. We see that where have they been standing before one another in, with no shame, they, we see shame and blame and hiding come into the picture. And the impact of this disobedience and this independence, I keep falling over this stand, don't I? I'm going to move forward a little bit. Let's try not to fall over. The impact of this disobedience spreads, and we see Cain ask of Abel, who is killed in jealousy in Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for him? And the answer is yes, you were going to be. You were going to belong to one another. We might see these things in our world now. But we thank God that this is not the end of the story. Throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, we see God is seeking to rescue, to reconcile his people, and form for himself a people that would be a blessing to the rest of the world. And in the person of Jesus, God in flesh, we meet the new Adam, the one whole human being who came to live in perfect relationship to God, his Father, to the world and creation, and to human beings. We see God in his faithfulness, in his fidelity, his loyalty, his commitment to us that is unmatched by any other human relationship but can fuel that in our relationships. Jesus reconciles us to God, creation, and one another. We see a full human life in him. Incidentally, Jesus was single. He was not in a romantic relationship, as was Paul, uh, who we um, see elsewhere. And um, so we just see them in context, both um, marriage and singleness lived out in submission to the Lord and in pointing to Jesus in different ways. Because in the end, there's one marriage of the church to the bridegroom. More on that in future months. We are called in the New Testament friends of God in Christ and brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our primary relational category to one another, brothers and sisters. And knowing Jesus means that we know this truth and that sets us free to be in those thriving relationships. It's good news. There is a way, a person, a relationship that reconciles all other relationships And in a sense, all of our human relationships then have this third person, they have God in them, being the source and the definition and the fuel for them. So we don't have to decide what's right and wrong between us. We don't have to compete. We have one that has enough love for both of us, so we see one another as people to be in relationship with at peace, pointing to God. We have a tether, a reference point. We relinquish our independence and trust in the one who made us and everyone else once again. So the things of what is known as the fall sometimes, but the things that have been the fruit of disobedience to God are reversed in Jesus and his kingdom, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The other's focus becomes our priority, moving away from focusing on ourselves out of fear 
and survival. Independence and isolation move to interdependence. We need one another and we need God. Isolation and self-sufficiency move to community. And in the New Testament, the community of the church was revolutionary, just as these creation narratives were revolutionary and radical uh, to those first hearers. So were the New Testament letters that spoke of brothers and sisters in Christ, whether rich or poor, men or women, young or old, Greek or Jew. This was revolutionary. And the picture we have, there's another, I'll show you another book in case you're a book person. The picture we have, I've taken from this book, Paul's Idea of Community. Oh, such a good book. If you want to have a look at the title, have a look later on. The image of the church was of maturing children of God. A corporate call to maturing in Christ. Not to be childish, but childlike in our trust and dependence on our Father. A bit like, I suppose, the ideal is to, to have kind of those adult friendships with our parents. Now, that is difficult and not always the case. Um, but the, the maturing children of God in community. It was a highly unlikely, unpredictable family, says Tom Wright, to the surrounding culture. And it's inherently messy. You read the New Testament uh, for a little while and you, it's not all ideal. It takes work. It takes Intention. It takes commitment. And as we do that, God's people should look different. And we're going to think about different ways that that's expressed in the next couple of weeks as we um, reflect together and in our small groups. And we have um, a couple of really helpful passages that we're going to look at in the next two weeks. Um, Romans 12 and Galatians 6 that talk about the kind of community we want to be. Having sincere love, being devoted to one another, sharing with one another, practicing hospitality, living at peace with everyone as far as it depends on us with the responsibility that we have for ourselves. We'll think in the next couple of weeks about how we have um, responsibility and agency. It's a kind of what we can bring to a situation when we put ourselves in relationship with God and others. We have healthy boundaries, but also generous compassion for one another. And in Galatians 6, there's a sense of carrying each other's burdens, but also carrying our own load. We'll think about that in the next couple of weeks as well, because it takes wisdom to do that together. And we're going to address ourselves not for ourselves' sake, but for the purpose of healthy, fruitful, servant-hearted relationships. Taking responsibility for ourselves and sharing responsibility for one another. And as we thought about um, before, and I've shared with our morning congregation, that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, if you've ever been to a wedding, you might have heard it. Um, weddings and married people get all the fun with that reading um, because we read it and if it's, as if it's about marriage only. It's actually about who God is and his love and the love he has for each of us and how we ought to live. That's the kind of love that is our destiny. That's going to be the love that's lived in in the new heavens and the new earth. We have to practice them now 
because they will last into eternity. So we are designed by God for loving relationship with God and creation and others. Every human being's destiny is to be an image bearer. This destiny has been distorted by that disobedience, that rejection of God's best for us. But Jesus restores our destiny in his death and resurrection. And when we trust in Jesus, we have his powerful Holy Spirit, his life within us, directing our hearts and minds towards Christ and towards one another. God provides relationships that are suitable for us. Even when we don't see it, God is working in our relationships when we submit them to him. I hope that's begun or maybe renewed our sense of who we are and what we're made for. And join us over the next two weeks as we hear that lived out, as we reflect for ourselves. Thank you for listening to the St. George's Lead Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.